probably had the experience of sitting down to read an article about a new study that really seems relevant to you. But what if you found out the reporter misinterpreted the data that was the basis for that story? Or worse yet, what if the failure to understand biases caused the scientists to produce a study that was flawed? Our guest today on Stats and Story has written that in today's environment, our talent for jumping to conclusions makes it all too easy to find false patterns or to ignore alternative explanations for a result, or to accept reasonable outcomes without any question. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our discussion today about science journalism is going to focus on why the media are uncomfortable with uncertainty and what we can do to do fix that through statistics. Before we talk with our special guest, Stats and Stories reporter Reese Tebow tells us about the website Sense About Science USA that helps journalists connect with statisticians to improve the accuracy of their stories about science. Journalists, for a long while, have had a dirty little secret. We're not that great at math. We're right brain type people. But as big data and computer algorithms become essential tools in investigative reporting, it's now more important than ever for journalists to get their numbers straight. Netta F. Sarmanesh is the Deputy Director of Sense About Science, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping the journalists who are treading through the often murky waters of science and research reporting. She says, when it comes to databases, it's not enough to simply memorize a couple Excel functions. So you definitely need to have a savviness about how you're analyzing them or how, what questions you're asking from people to create the data set. It's not just about knowing the statistics that you can use, but also actually understanding the data, how the data was collected, what are the questions you need to ask scientists about that. But Netta says the public also has some work to do. We're in the age of Twitter, where all news must be breaking and each story needs to be bigger and bolder than the one before it. She says readers need to curb their expectations. It's also how we have been habituated to understand science, that every story needs to, to be on the front page, where, you know, much of science builds on itself and slowly builds up to a conclusion. I, I, I think we have as, a, as readers, as viewers, as, as a general public, we've kind of become accustomed to expecting these types of stories with the headlines we're talking about. And I think that's also something that needs to change. Netta says that this stuff is so important because science and statistics underpin our public policy and really our entire lives. Much of the personal and societal choices we make are you know, based on, on the news that we consume. <laughs> and you know, that's how we got much of our information, and if that's not accurate, if that's not a good um, overview of actually what's going on in the world or what we should be concerned about or what we should care about, then we're not really actually as informed as we think we are. The science is based on evidence and how you look at that evidence and how you analyze it, you need to fix for that as well. You know, scientific process, evidence, statistics, these all go hand in hand and influence, influence our lives. For Stats and Stories, I'm Reese Tebow. Joining me for Stats and Stories are our regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. And our special guest today is freelance science writer and Gallaudet University professor Regina Nuzzo. She has a Ph.D. from Stanford, a graduate degree in science journalism from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and her writings have been published on science, medicine, health, statistics, and the process of scientific research in publications such as Scientific American, Nature, 
ESPN, and the Los Angeles Times. And she also teaches statistics in American Sign Language. Welcome to our show, Regina. Thanks so much. I wanted to start off, though, since I'm a former journalist myself, uh, with some comments I read that you had about how the media are uncomfortable with uncertainty. Strikes me that in 2016, that's probably more true than ever before. <laughs> but I wanted to have you talk a little bit about why you think, in general, the media is uncomfortable with uncertainty and what statistics can really do to help that situation. I think that's a great question. And, uh, you know, to be fair, it's not just journalists uh, that have the problems with the uncertainty, not just the media. Um, I feel like our brains are hardwired to give us uh, black and white answers. We're biased toward binary sorts of things. And uh, nature is more in shades of gray. So um, we are already wanting, trending toward more certainty than the world can offer. And then you add the pressures that the media have. We have limited space. Um, we're not really sure who our audience is. We have to make sure that we get in and get out very quickly. Um, reader attention span is way down. We don't have the time, the room, and we can't necessarily trust that our readers are going to sit around and wait for the caveats and say, eh, Maybe, maybe not. They want to know the answer. Um, they want to know, especially with news you can use, which is often a lot of science and health and medicine journalism, how can I apply this to my life today? And for you to say, oh, well, it might be true. It might not be true. There's an 80% chance. Um, here are the reasons why and why not. Who's going to sit around for that? John Baylor will go to you for the next question. Thanks, Bob. So, Regina, how did, how did you get into the science journalism game after starting out a, a career first as an engineer and then as a then as a statistician you know, writing was always my secret passion, and I would run around in graduate school with a New York review of books uh, ta uh, stuffed into my folder, and I would read that on the sly uh, instead of reading my stats journal. So that was always my, <laughs> my secret guilty vice, and I didn't realize you could actually make a living doing this. Um, and I told my advisor in my postdoc um, at McGill University that I wanted to write about statistics for a general audience. And he said, um, that's not really rewarded in academia, so don't do that. Um, so I decided, okay, that's fine. I'm getting out of academia. And uh, went and learned how to be a journalist. I knew that I wanted to write. I wanted to take the message out to a bigger audience uh, because they want to know, they deserve to know, and I think that uh, they're capable of, of – uh, uh, understanding these sorts of issues and uh, vitally important in today's society. So I went and got a degree in science journalism, fell in love immediately, immediately. So I, I wrote about uh, science journalism for a lot of different things. I ended up writing a lot about sex and uh, health and medicine, variety of outlets. And um, then I decided, okay, I, Let's try merging this with statistics. I have this background in statistics. I enjoy writing about science. Um, let's see if I can put them together in unusual ways. Very good. Richard Campbell, we'll go to you for the next question. One of the things in journalism uh, that I talk about is that a good journalist's job is to translate stuff into common sense. And you have both perspectives, which is very unusual. So... I often have academic friends who complain about how bad journalism is. 
<laughs> and I also have journalist friends who complain about why they can't understand what academics are talking about. So talk a little bit about how you've kind of negotiated those two worlds. It's a, it's a great question. And I think that if more people understood the pressures of the other side, um, then they wouldn't be so quick to complain. Um, journalists under a lot of time pressure, a lot of pressure from their, their editors, for their audience. Uh, academics are under their, their own pressure. So um, with that, I also think at the same time that uh, statisticians and journalists um, are really Long lost cousins, or you know, um, siblings separated at birth, twins separated at birth. Um, I realized the more that I learned about science journalism since I came to that late after statistics, that this is really the same sort of thing as statistics. So statisticians, they find um, well, journalists. Um, they find the story among the facts, right? It's no good just to report the facts. You have to have the narrative in there. And uh, statisticians, we find the signal among the noise, right? So you're taking all these data points and then you're creating something new out of that. Um, you know, in, uh, in journalism, you have the, the adage, the journalism professors say, if your grandmother says she loves you, be sure to check it out, right? Check out your facts. <laughs> highly, highly um, skeptical people, right? Um, yes. Same things for statisticians. I think the statisticians would translate it to um, with the strength of evidence that grandma loves you. Right? <laughs> they would, but it's the same thing. Give me, show me something there. And um, uh, the last reason I think that they, they really would make a good team together, um, journalists are very... Um, uh, very sardonic people. They um, have what I would say is a good uh, BS detector, right? Mm -hmm. They can spot um, something a mile away. And statisticians have the same thing. They have what I call mm -hmm. a bad science um, detector. So they're able to see that. So I think they make great partners uh, in that way, more so than you might think. So this is why we get along, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason we're still talking know. to each other. <laughs> she just explained it. <laughs> You know, the one thing, the one point you've made right at the very beginning that I find interesting, one of the other problems and frustrations, I think, for journalists and scientists today is also the audience, because the audience wants, and you touched on this, they want everything immediately. So I, does that pose a real problem, too? Because, you know, you want to give them the honest-to-goodness truth, This is, but they don't seem enough don't have enough patience sometimes to uh, to allow you to do that it's true you, you know sometimes I think they might have more patience uh, than we give them credit for and I think that the editors um, are conservative um, creatures and they need to be able to put these things out and they're unwilling to take risks and uh, I think it, so there's this natural tension between a, a journalist and an editor, and I think that it's the journalist's job to push, to include more caveats, to include a little more, um, and the editor's job to push back and say, no, 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 remember your audience, keep it simple. Um, but I think that increasingly, today's audience, very savvy about uncertainty, and they want the facts behind it. Perhaps um, in the days when you would just pull open a newspaper and that was it, you need to be able to get through it quickly. Um, but today, people are used to, to clicking on hyperlinks, and right. uh, we have Wikipedia. People will get lost in Wikipedia, so they want that behind it. And I think that they're capable of a slightly more uncertainty um, than we give them credit for. I think that there's a lot that journalists can do to enhance that, and I have some ideas that I've suggested to various people, but and that's my quick answer to that. 
Uh, Richard Campbell. You just mentioned Wikipedia. And I, I, in preparing for this and, and listening to your talk today, I said, well, I'll, I'm just going to go on, on Google and, and ask, you know, what is a p-value, which was the subject. So this, is what, this was the first thing that came up. This is on Wikipedia. In, frequent, in frequentist statistics, the p-value is a function of the observed sample results, a test statistics, relative to a statistical model which measures how extreme the observation is. So I'm, that didn't help me at all. No, why would it? <laughs> That's right. So uh, um, help me with this. So tell me a story here that's going to going to help our audience understand what a p-value is and how important it is. Oh, this is my job to explain a p-value oh right here, right now. <laughs> well, we have mm. two of you that oh, can do mm. <laughs> There we go. Um, hmm. You know, I like to say, and this is not a technical definition, I would like to stress, um, that a p-value is a good index of surprise. Um, how surprised or how skeptical should I be about my finding? That does not mean that it's, um, it's a p-value can be a zero, a number between zero and one. That does not mean um, that it's a linear scale, that it, you know, it nicely matches up, that 0.05 actually means anything 5% in a way that would make a difference to you. Um, smaller numbers mean you should be more skeptical, more surprised by the results. Um, and I think that's the simplest way of explaining mm -hmm. it. Um, when we start getting a little more technical and say, well, what does that, that 0.05 really mean? I think that's yes. when we, we lose the, the lay audience. But John might have a different opinion of that, and you might have practiced something better than I have. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that it's, you have to couch it in the context of, of testing. And this, the standard type, when I try to talk about hypothesis testing, and Regina, you may do the same, is think about it from the context of jury trials. That, that you start out with a belief about this, the, uh, the state of, of what's, what occurs for this particular person, this defendant. And the jury is told to believe that they're innocent. The alternative is that they're guilty. So you have competing hypotheses about this. Right data is being collected to prosecute the hypothesis of innocence. If the data is sufficient, that leads you to reject that hypothesis and then declare guilt. Mm -hmm. If the data is insufficient, you would say not, not guilty, that there's insufficient evidence to, to conclude guilt. The, in essence, I think of the p-value as, as I, I really like the index of surprise. I've never thought of that yes. before, but now I'm going to steal it and use it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that it's the, it's the idea is that, that you have – there's information that's presented. It's being processed by some data prosecutor to say, I don't believe this hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And this is just the way that's quantified. Mm -hmm. I agree. And, and one of the things that seems to make a little sense to me, like evidence is I'm comfortable with that idea. Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's one of the, the things that I think statisticians and journalists have in common, yes. that good journalism is based on evidence. You know, have you looked at the data? Have you got the documents? And what, and what do they say? I agree. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the t I can't even say it. <laughs> we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 
I always do that. <laughs> Our topic is why the media are uncomfortable with uncertainty and what we can do to fix that problem. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell, and our special guest today is freelance science writer Regina Nuzo, who's also a professor at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., where she teaches statistics in American Sign Language. Let's go back to John Baylor for the next question. Okay, Regina. How, I'm curious, how has being a statistician helped you be a better journalist? And then the compliment, you know, mm-hmm. how has being a, you know, a, a journalist helped you be a better statistician? Mm-hmm. Statistician, how has that helped me be a better journalist? I feel like I have the secret weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, my stats, PhD, or any sort of stats degree has given me a leg up over other journalists. Um, when I science journalism, um, and I can read the primary literature, and I don't need to stick around the press release. I don't need to even, I can go beyond the abstract. I know how to get right in um, and understand, because I think uh, statistics is um, scientific process, crystallized. Um, And so I have this bird's eye view of how science works um, and how we're marshalling data, we're collecting evidence um, and making an argument for one one theory or one hypothesis in favor of another. And so I think that helps me bring that skepticism and um, a real critical eye in that. But it also means that I know how to evaluate a study and um, I've done that in a few of my stories. I've spotted weaknesses in uh, the study. And uh, weaknesses, mm, that's probably a, a strong word. I've um, found things that, um, that should be caveat and that should be mentioned um, that scientists reading an article would understand, but they need to be mentioned in the, um, in the, the article for popular press. So I'm able to go to other statisticians or include in there. Um, well, yes, it's significant, but the effect size is very small. So it lets me add an element, I think, that a, a lot of other journalists wouldn't. So how, how about in the other direction? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Being a, how has being a, a journalist helped you be a better statistician? Wow, that's uh, that's interesting. So I have a healthy understanding of my audience and of narrative. So really, it's it's doing the exact same things, taking these complicated ideas, making them simple, making a story, really understanding how to reach my audience, and. Uh, I don't mind. So a journalist has taught me it's okay to use uh, anecdotes. It's okay to uh, really reach your audience and use humor and uh, meet them wherever they're at. Um, And so that's what I try to do as a a stats instructor is uh, use humor, talk about sex, whatever works. (laughs) (laughs) Sex works. (laughs) I think I I read somewhere that you, you said statisticians as a reporter, are your favorite people, your favorite resource. Talk a little bit about why, because a lot of people don't understand the importance of being able to call somebody up on the phone that maybe can help you uh, understand something sometimes. This is this is one of the things I've really been talking to statisticians about and encouraging journalists. Um, I say put a statistician on speed dial uh, because they are hugely skeptical and they can get right to the heart of the matter. They can talk about why a study or why a finding, put it into perspective in real life. What are the chances this is true? Um, what does this mean to you? Um, and, and really translate a statistician, when you get a good one, they know how to communicate, they know how to get that. And uh, I think they're really an underutilized 
as resource. So I've been trying to encourage my colleagues, make friends, take them out for a beer, get to know them. <laughs> Richard Campbell, we'll go to you for the next question. So we're in a political season right now. And every day, if we're watching the evening news or the morning news, we're inundated with polls. <clears throat> and they're often uh, polls that are completely seem completely contradictory to a lay audience. One of the things that I want to ask you, because I know the New York Times, when it does poll data, will often tell you how they got these results, and they'll report things that statisticians can often understand, but they'll report them in a way so that a lay audience can understand. I'm actually bothered as a former journalist, as an academic, how little they talk about what these polls actually mean. Because they actually... They they drive narratives. They drive big narratives about who's winning and who's losing. So these large narratives are very powerful, and they actually can influence people to vote one way or the other. And yet, it seems they're built on a lot of uncertainty. Yes. This is one of my, uh, my concerns with data journalism, I think, in general. Yes. So if you don't mind me broadening that out oh, from, that from polls. Yeah. Um, so I'm a huge fan of data journalism, and this is where journalists are basically acting as data scientists. They're going out there sometimes they're collecting their own data. They're using publicly available data. Um, but yet some of them have not been trained as scientists and they haven't been trained necessarily in statistics. So they don't understand those caveats and they don't understand how our brain is primed to find any sort of patterns, real or not in the data, seize upon them as if they were real and concoct stories, um, just those stories is sometimes what statisticians call them. So um, after the, the Kipling stories of, okay, I see something that happened and then I concoct this story for why this must be so. And um, I think it's a danger in journalism if they're not checked, um, kept in check in the same way um, to say, this might be real, it might not be real. Mm -hmm. John Baylor. So I'm curious, what's, what's been the most unusual story that you've covered? Mm. Or, or you could even you can re, you can change the question just like academics like to do to, to answer the one that you like. So, or what's been the most fun story, perhaps, if you'd like to change, answer that instead? Mm, that's a very interesting question. At the time that I'm working on it, every story is my favorite okay. story. So, um, so I can't say that. Um, definitely, the sex stories have been interesting. The things that I've I've written um, about sex, just because people get so excited, and um, <laughs> pun intended, not intended. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but as an, an educator, I feel that um, when when I've written a lot of uh, stories about uh, sexual science, it was a chance to really sneak in some actual science because someone will read it start to finish, and I will give them all kinds of statistics, all kinds of you know science in there, and they're going to keep reading because it's about sex, and they want to learn about sex. Um, so I guess it's a spoonful of sugar idea. Um, so it's, it's fine. Again, I have no shame in that way, so I don't mind. Whatever it takes to, to get them interested, and I don't do it in a, a salacious sort of way, um, but uh, I, d I don't mind doing that. And so I managed to teach people a lot about statistics and science, um, and and they think they're learning about sex. <laughs> 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 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, and again, our discussion today is focusing on why the media are uncomfortable with uncertainty and what we can do to fix that problem. And our special guest today is freelance science writer and Gallaudet University professor Regina Nuzzo. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists are Miami University Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell and Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. Something else, I I was reading uh, some of your articles that you've written. And I noticed one problem that you raised in, in academia is that it's extremely competitive today, especially where, uh, you know, you're supposed to pile up publications and things like that if you're a professor and you want statistically significant results. And, but the, the, the impression I got was that sometimes the researchers, because they have a stake in things, uh, that can really cause a problem. And I wanted to have you talk a little bit uh, about that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great. And it's something that I alluded to before, our cognitive bias, it's towards mm-hmm. um, finding patterns in data. So um, you picture a brain um, evolving in the African savanna. Um, you need to spot patterns rather than overlook them, um, the, the opportunity cost. So um, now translate that today to a scientist sitting down in front of a computer seizing on random patterns, um, not so useful. It was very useful um, to evade lions um, and gather berries and not so useful anymore. So there have been a number of interesting proposals for how we can combat our own worst tendencies in data analysis. So I don't necessarily blame scientists for doing these sorts of things. It's just human nature. That's it. Yeah, I was going to say part of the problem is not it's not that they're deliberately trying to deceive people, but there's just biases that they aren't taking into account. And uh, they're deceiving themselves, and they don't even <laughs> realize it. So I don't think there's any malicious intent. Uh, there mm-hmm. is fraud out there, but I think for the most part, um, it's just eagerness. Um, it's excitement. They get very excited about what they're doing. They want to see things. They think they found a pattern. They want to go for it. So we have to um, design ways to keep that in check. John Baylor. I'm I'm curious as you look at some of the resources that that are out there now. What do you think are some of the the best cover, news coverage that you would see that that really captures the story with the caveats and the nuance? So what are what are some of the if you were going to recommend to to people to to read to see that? Where where might you tell them to look? Am I allowed to promote my own work? Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going, we will. <laughs> um, not because I necessarily think that uh, it's a stellar way of doing it, but just because it's fresh in my mind. I have stories about it. So, um, uh, for example, is it okay if I talk about penises here? Yeah. <laughs> no? All right. Yes. That, that might fine. be a no. no, um, no, no I can, all right. Uh, how about if I talk that's about fine. dating? Are you sure? Either, whatever you'd like to talk about. <laughs> and, <laughs> Sure. Well, we'll find you're, out. The, you're the guest. <laughs> she immediately knows that all the men in the room got nervous. I know. So. I, I, see I think you should faces. go for it. <laughs> the blushing. Um, there was a, a scientific uh, article that was uh, published in Pertidian National Academy of Sciences mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, and um, they looked at women's preferences for penis size, and they had a very uh, legitimate scientific experiment for how they did this, and it was a, um, a nice guy's uh, PhD dissertation. And um, so the the interesting thing was that, and some people overlooked this, um, it was a nonlinear effect. So he actually fit a a quadratic um, regression to this, nonlinear regression. And so most people reported this because they just saw bigger is better. So it was, it was bigger and better until... 
big was too big, um, and most people did not report that. So I think it's important to have those sorts of things in there and not just go to the immediately most interesting um, sort of thing, which is bigger and better, and this fits all our, our preconceived stereotypes. So um, that might be one example. I don't know if it's the best one. I have a couple of others, but uh, maybe I just want to talk about penises. <laughs> so, so then a quick follow-up. So if you were, you know, the New York Times is, as Richard had mentioned, has their little box where they, they'll often explain the sampling method that was used. Mm-hmm. Now, you've mentioned some online sources that you, that, that you liked when we were having conversations. What are, mm-hmm. what are some of those that, that, that you might recommend for folks to, to investigate? Mm-hmm. Um, I really like what, uh, what 538 and what Vox does. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about this. It, it's a much savvier audience in some ways. Uh, so they can go in, they can handle the uncertainty. Wonk blog at Washington Post um, does a wonderful job. So they tend to be the online ones, not traditional print. Um, and so that means they have the, the space and the agility, you know, to get something out quickly and to link to other things. I love Wonk blog. I think they do a wonderful job of presenting um, what's behind uh, these sorts of stories and presenting data visualizations. So I really like that idea. Thank you. Richard Campbell. So one of the, the challenges in journalism education is getting students interested in uh, telling important stories and significant stories that have numbers and data behind them. So uh, what, how would you try to uh, uh, influence a student interested in journalism uh, to take statistics. Most of our students do take statistics, but get them interested even in double majoring because we require a double major and I'd like to see more of that. I mean, one way is to tell them that they can study penis size. So <laughs> that's something I hadn't thought of before. Who, but. Can, who can argue with that? Um, if that fails, uh, then the, uh, the, the backup, I really think that data journalism is, is extremely hot and uh, it's where the future is. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now, people are doing it on their own. They're learning R, the programming language R, mm-hmm. so they can sit down, they can collect their own data, or data that's available from the government, from the public. I mean, you go online, yeah. data everywhere, um, and play with it. And they're getting mm-hmm. in there, and they're playing with it, they're writing stories, they're doing data visualizations. And basically, they're acting as social scientists or statisticians and uh, writing stories about it, huge in demand. Um, so uh, guaranteed jobs right there. Um, and just think of how powerful you would be if you had formal training behind that instead mm-hmm. of having to learn it on your own or learn it um, on the job later. So much better to do it now. So, um, so that's how I convince people. Maybe it's just saying you have great jobs after you graduate doing mm-hmm. fun stuff. John, we'll probably have time for one more question, so I'll turn to you. All right. Thank you. Uh, Regina, what do you like best about what you do? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I've said that I have academic ADHD, which means I'm interested in lots of different things. And I think it's perfect for a journalist and perfect for a statistician. So a statistician, you get to peek into other people's studies and say, ooh, let me learn about um, you know bugs today and the science that you've done about that. And let me help you analyze your data. Journalism is the same sort of thing. Here, what are you... Um, what are you doing? And you get to talk to people about their passions and their excitement. I think it's the same between statistics and journalism. So the idea of being able to put them together, um, very exciting. It seems ideal to me. 
Regina Nuzzo, we want to thank you very much for sharing your insights with us on Stats and Stories today. Regina is a freelance science writer and a professor at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, you can send us an email at statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.